Well, in the sovereignty of God, the theme for today's message actually was given by the children's ministry. I saw the skits. I said, man, we got to do one of those skits. And when they chose the one, how uh, forgiveness is an expression of love, I said, that's where we need to go this morning. So I tabled what I intended to preach because I think this is such a needful theme. If you're new here, we are in a series on revival. The word revive means to live again. And it is like a Christian coming back to life, as it were, from a state of a spiritual coma. Now, if you've been in this series, I've referenced Martin Lloyd-Jones' incredible book on revival, and he makes the case that for revival to happen, you have to dig out the well that the Philistines or the world have filled in with all kinds of debris. So we, we've been digging down for about 12 messages, getting back to some real essential stuff. There was a, oh, the spade is around here somewhere, but it, no worries, it's, it's gone. I don't really need, I'll, I'll, I'll grab it. And I just want to quickly recount uh, the ground that we've covered, because once we're done with doing a little bit more digging today, next week we're going to get into, we're going to turn the corner, and we're going to get into this idea of the work of the Holy Spirit and revival. But again, we've been digging back. So about a, probably about 12 weeks ago, I got back to a truth that is utterly foundational to revival, getting back to the book. And I did uh, really an exposition of 2 Chronicles 34, the reform under King Josiah. The following week, I did an exposition of Ephesians 6, 11 through 18, talking about the reality of spiritual warfare. The week after that, Pastor Cleet talked about how in revival, obedience is not optional. Then the fourth week, I came back with a very palatable topic, namely that if revival will happen, we must rediscover and get real about the reality of the wrath of God. I did an exposition of Romans 1 for that message. Then the week after, I did a topical message talking about how there is pain before gain. Jesus said, except a grain of wheat fall to the ground and die, it remains alone. But if it dies, it brings forth much fruit. That in the life of the church, both biblically and historically, there's often, often a winnowing before an outpouring, a pruning before a greater harvest. Then we looked at this simple but profound topic that if we would be a revived people, we got to get re-amazed re about the love of God. We get so passe about that. And we looked at 1 John chapter 3, verse 1, Behold, what manner of love the Father has bestowed upon us, that we should be called the children of God. Then the next week, I think that was week seven, Pastor Charles talked about that when revival is starting to stir, there's a rekindled love for the local church, a powerful truth. Then the week after, I did a topical message, a second one in this series, on helping people find true spiritual freedom. And to be honest with you, I don't remember many things I preach. Probably by Monday, you don't either. Hopefully, you'll remember what I preached this morning. But that one has stuck with me because I talked about the ABCs of helping people find true spiritual freedom. I want to have an awareness of lostness. I want to have a boldness to do something about it. 
And I want to have confidence that God will work through me as I submit to him. And then the week after, Nick came and he talked about the vital reality that if we would be revived, in love we must speak the truth. That was Ephesians 4, 11 through 16. And then two weeks ago, I talked about if, if getting back to the book is foundational, the centerpiece would be the supremacy of Jesus Christ. And we looked at Colossians 1, 15 through 23, and we saw that Jesus is supreme over creation and in redemption. Finally, last week, Pastor Cleet talked about that in revival, you must be willing to be persecuted for your faithfulness as we move away from a cultural Christ and we embrace the biblical Christ. You remember all of those messages, right? Nope. Any of them, maybe? I just wanted to kind of get our moorings in this series. Now, today we're going to grab the spade one last time again before next week when we turn the corner and we look at the work of the Holy Spirit in revival. So let me begin quickly with prayer and we will dive in. Father, thank you so much for today. It is glorious to gather with the saints of God. And I know my heart has already been warmed by Calvary's love. I do pray that you would melt our hearts, Lord, with Calvary's love today. Lord, if we've been forgiven all by grace, how can we not forgive others? And yet, Lord, I think I would confess, and perhaps most here would confess, that it is so easy to hold on to a low-grade grudge and put a Christian smile all over it. Lord, I pray that you would root out every seed of unforgiveness because unforgiveness is self-imprisonment. I pray, Lord, that you would show us that as we have been forgiven, we ought to forgive as well. I pray that nobody would check out, Facebook out, media out, phone out, daydream out, but Lord, we know you're everywhere all the time anyway, but we would have one of those times when we would say, surely God was in our midst. Surely you spoke to us. So speak to us, Lord. Speak, O oh Lord. We ask in Jesus' name, amen. Carbon monoxide poisoning. Every year... About 40,000 Americans go to the ER because of carbon monoxide poisoning. Some 4,000 are hospitalized and over 400 die. That's why you have those little detectors hopefully in your house. Now the thing that makes carbon monoxide poisoning so deadly is that it is a silent killer. There's no taste to it. There's no smell to it, certainly no sound to it, no touch to it. You can breathe it in and you don't even know that you are until the effects come later. Well, the last thing I want to dig back down into in this series is something that if we do not practice, I believe all hopes for revival will be killed right out of the starting gates both on a personal level, but also on a corporate level. And what I'm talking about is this key truth of forgiveness. Forgiveness. 
Unforgiveness is a revival killer. It's a silent killer, however, because the reality is you can, you can read your Bible, you can go to church, you can still hang out with your little group of people, you can pray, you can continue to confess Christ, and yet harboring in your heart unchecked unforgiveness. And what will happen is it will make you spiritually stagnant. In fact, it will basically cause you to spiritually wither up and all but die. And in the meanwhile, you'll just be stuck going through the rote religious motions, doing all that stuff I talked about, oblivious, or worse yet, uncaring about your sad, pathetic spiritual state. Have you heard about the side effects of unforgiveness? It's ill effects. What's interesting is even doctors, I mean, just from a secular perspective, I, I read some studies in some journal articles that unforgiveness can contribute to high blood pressure, heart disease, and even heart attacks. It can also lead to depression, and it can contribute to mental illness. Now, that's not to say if you experience any of those things, oh, it's because you haven't forgiven somebody, but they're just saying it can contribute to that. Well, we do know definitively from the words of sacred scripture that unforgiveness can cause bitterness in your heart, root of bitterness, Hebrews 12, 15. It can cause a person to walk in darkness. They're not hearing from God. They're not seeing God, 1 John chapter 2. And then perhaps worst of all, it opens up a door of opportunity for the enemy, Satan himself, to work and just rough, run roughshod over your life, 2 Corinthians 2. So it's been said by a lot of people, and it's massively true, being in a state of unforgiveness is like building Cell, you put building the bars of a cell right around you. Unforgiveness has been called self imprisonment. Unforgiveness has been called self enslavement. That is massively true. But the damaging effect of unforgiveness that I'm concerned with in light of this series and this season is the deadly. Revival-killing dynamic of quenching the Holy Spirit, which makes this a good segue into what's coming. Ephesians 4.30, you heard Pastor Cleet say it, says, do not grieve. That's actually the word here in Ephesians 4.30. Do not grieve the Holy Spirit by whom you were sealed on the day of redemption. If you're a Christian, the Holy Spirit resides in you. There's one baptism and many fillings, but you may be not so filled right now. You may be quenching the Holy Spirit. Two verses later, it tells us, forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you, which means if we're not forgiving one another, then we're doing what with the Holy Spirit? We're quenching the Holy Spirit, right? So there'll be no hopes of revival on a personal level and on a corporate level if we are actively quenching the Holy Spirit. And on the other hand, and on the positive side, if we're extending forgiveness, 
Well, that's just because the Spirit is freshly moving in us. Bill Eliff put it this way, forgiveness is both a path on which revival enters and a fruit which revival brings. All that to say this, I want to preach to you a simple truth from a short verse that could have soul-reviving impact. Ephesians 4.32, be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. The title of the message is simply, Forgive One Another. I don't have an outline. I'm just going to kind of walk the text phrase by phrase and may the Spirit do the work in all of our hearts that we need done. The first phrase in Ephesians 4.32, be kind to one another. He's just kind of beginning, I think, with a general exhortation. Be what to each other? Be kind. I don't think you need no Greek for that, do you? Be kind to one another. He says, be kind. Kindness is never outdated. Now, when he says be kind to one another, he doesn't mean you don't speak the truth in love. Nick hit that again from Ephesians 4, 11 through 16. It doesn't even mean necessarily that you don't say something to someone that might be hard to hear. It doesn't mean that. Nor does it mean that you lend a blind eye to evil, injustice, compromise, and all of that because the Apostle Paul who penned those words didn't lend a blind eye to those things at all. But it simply means that our default posture in all of life and our default approach when we need to do some of those things is one of kindness. Who does kindness ultimately reflect the Lord himself right it's one of his it's one of his attributes that's put on blast all through scripture I could multiply the references but I would summarize it this way that is God's default posture kindness and default approach kindness to all humanity generally you ever heard the expression common grace he makes the rain to fall on the just and the unjust. That's his common grace. The fact that you're breathing right now, whether you're in Christ or in Adam, that's God's kindness. So God's posture is kindness to humanity in general and then to his elect covenant people in, specific, in, in particular, there is that posture of kindness, those who have received this salvific grace. And again, I could just multiply the references. I hope you are in your minds right now. When, 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 when that, um, the theophany that Moses had, the Lord passed by him, the Lord, the Lord of God, kind, merciful, and gracious. It's all through the Bible. So I, I would say this at this point. As we seek as the people of God to be faithful to God in a lost and dying world, or as the scripture puts it, in the midst of a wicked and perverse generation, we've got to make sure that we're not martyrs for the Messiah. You know the martyr complex? We got to make sure that we're not jerks for Jesus. We got to make sure that we're actually kind people for Christ. That's got to be our posture towards the world. 
Now, how about to one another? That's where things can get even dicier, right? Because those you're closer to, well, you can really chafe up against each other, right? So within the church, there will be no shortage of opportunities to find reasons, and frankly, sometimes very valid reasons, not to be kind to a brother or sister in Christ. I want to read to you a quote from a sermon clip by Bishop Patrick Wooden. This is what he says. Unforgiveness destroys fellowship. Maybe someone in the church hurt your feelings. Maybe someone in the church did you wrong. It happens. People are fallible. And you know what? He goes on to say, quite demonstratively, and so are you. There is no one here who has not failed somebody. Well, so-and-so really gets on my nerves. Everyone here gets on someone's nerves. All of us are professional nerve get-oners. You just think you're the wonderful one. But there are people who can hardly take you either. So when someone disappoints you, you don't hold on to that. You don't walk in disappointment. You don't walk in unforgiveness where you won't let it go and keep bringing it up. What if God did you that way? Now you can, if you want to, check out the rest of that clip. I posted that. Pretty powerful. We must never become cool with being unkind. Kindness really doesn't come naturally. I mean, it does when people are being kind to you, right? I mean, yeah. Even the scripture said, Jesus said that. But kindness, 24-7 posture, that does not come naturally. It doesn't come naturally for me. It's actually a supernatural thing. Which is exactly why Galatians 5.22 makes it clear it is part of the fruit of the Spirit. I read a story about two boys in church, maybe 8, 9, 10 years old, who were elbowing each other as they were singing, Great is thy faithfulness. They had a jousting match because each felt the other was encroaching upon his personal space. They didn't miss a word of the song, Great is Thy Faithfulness, neither did they miss an opportunity to elbow their brother in the ribs with anger. Think about it. They were thinking, they were singing about a kind God while not acting so kind themselves. I wonder if that's a parable of what we can be like sometimes. Singing our church stuff, but not really being kind to one, jousting in different ways. Let that not be said about us. Instead, he says, his general exhortation is be kind to one another. And then he comes to this next phrase, tender-hearted. From general exhortation, he now dials in on the state of our heart. He says, be, be tender-hearted. Be tender-hearted. He didn't say, now, it's okay for you to be hard-hearted sometimes. Ugh, that convicts me. He doesn't say it's okay to be cold-hearted sometimes. That gets me too. He doesn't say it's okay to be callous-hearted. No. What does he say? Tender-hearted. 
Actually, the literal translation would be bowels of mercy. Because it's just talking about how you feel inside, right? It's talking about how you feel inside when someone you really love and you really right with is hurting. When they're in pain, what do you feel? You feel, there's an empathy, not just a sympathy, there's an empathy that you feel. There's a pain, there's a compassion. Sometimes the word is translated that way. And time and time and time and time again, it specifically refers to God's heart towards us. Consider a couple of verses. It says about Jesus in Matthew 9, 36, when he saw the crowds, he had, one translation, compassion. He had bowels of mercy for them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. And how about that parable Jesus told, a very relevant parable for today's topic, when one guy begs his master to forgive him of a debt of really chump change, you know, a 20 spot or something, and he, his master forgives him, and then he goes off and he won't, you know, you know he's forgiven of a massive debt, right, and he won't even forgive chump change the other guy. Now, this is what the master, this is what motivates the master to forgive him of his debt. He says, and out of pity for him, Matthew 18, 27, the master, listen, out of bowels of compassion, out of bowels of mercy, out of tender heartedness for him, the master of that servant released him and forgave the debt. We may not always feel bowels of mercy, Right? We may not always feel compassion. Therefore, again, if you expand what we read this morning in Ephesians 4, that is one of the things that we must intentionally and strategically and by the power of the Holy Spirit that dwells in us, put on. Every doggone day. We have to put on tenderheartedness. That does not come naturally to me. I need supernatural help for, for that. And I suspect many of you do as well. So when others are unkind to us, we ought not to, to respond in kind, if you will, but rather in kindness, in a tenderhearted kind of way. And maybe one of the things that can help is you don't know what that person is struggling with. You don't know what they're going through. You don't know their sorrows. You don't know their setbacks. You don't know what's going on in their life that might cause them to be, at least on the surface, less than kind. Here he dials in on the state of a heart. He says, be kind-hearted, tender-hearted, bowels of mercy. Now let's go to the phrase for which this sermon is titled in the big idea. He starts with a general exhortation. Be kind to one another. And then he dials in on the state of our heart. Tenderhearted. And now he climaxes this short, powerful verse with this crystal clear command forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. Again, you don't need no Greek for that, right? I'm like, I'm not left scratching my bald head saying, what does that mean? Like, this is, this is bottom shelf stuff and yet so hard to apply. Forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. Now, let me be clear. This does not mean forgiveness that there's no consequences for your sin, right? 
Because God forgives us upon repentance and faith. Does he take away all the consequences, though? Like, you could, you could, out of anger, break a window and then be repentant and remorseful and sorry and express as much. It doesn't mean the window comes back together, right? You still got a shattered window, and sometimes you can, you can shatter some people in, in hurt. And it doesn't, doesn't take away the consequences, but it does begin the process of healing. So it doesn't mean no consequences, nor does it mean you don't have conversations. Sometimes you do, and sometimes you don't. Because Colossians 3.13 says, bearing with one another, which means sometimes, like, I, don't, I, just need to, I just need to forgive. I need to have the conversation. And then it goes on to say, and forgiving each other if anyone has a complaint against you. So it does mean sometimes you have conversations, sometimes you don't. But here's what it does mean. Forgiveness means you release people from their debt against you. There's no getting even. Instead, there's extending forgiveness. It's releasing people from their offense against you, their hurt against you, their debt against you. Instead, you extend forgiveness. You're not getting even. You want good for them. Now, maybe you would say, well, they don't deserve it. You know what? You're probably what? Of course they don't deserve it. And neither did you or I. We didn't get forgiveness because we deserved it. That's why the scripture says right here, as God in Christ forgave you. Amen. That's Christianity 101 right there for you. That's baseline Christianity. God did not forgive you or I because we somehow deserved it. If you think that, you neither know God nor understand the gospel. In a few minutes, we're going to celebrate all that Jesus did so that we could be forgiven. We're going to celebrate communion. We're going to remember all that Jesus went through. His broken body, his shed blood. He took on what he did not deserve, our sin, and the judgment of God on our sin so that we could get what we do not deserve deserve forgiveness the grace of forgiveness that's why we sing about it oh the love that sought me oh the blood that bought me oh the grace of god that brought me to the fold of god we need to remember the savior how he forgave us when we didn't deserve it therefore we must forgive others when they don't deserve it and not only remember the Savior, you hear me talk about this, so I won't even expound upon it at all, but remember the stack. That is, remember all the sins you've been forgiven. If it was in a book of encyclopedias, baby, it would go up to the third heavens. Size six font, double column. A lifetime of sins. Remember the stack. And how about this? How about just remembering the saints? That's a new one. I thought about that. Just remember the people he forgave in Scripture. Jesus forgave adulterers. He forgave bullies. He forgave Christ deniers. He forgave drunkards. 
He forgave proud religious zealots. He forgave liars and prostitutes and womanizers. And I could give you accounts of each from Scripture and on and on and on. Oh, and guess who else he forgave? You. Me. So in light of the kinds of people that he forgave, most specifically you, don't you think we ought to forgive? See, we can't receive forgiveness and not extend it. It's an impossibility ultimately. Now we can do it for a season. It will make us spiritually sick by way of, as I said in the introduction, it will cause you to have bitterness in your heart. Aren't you tired of that? It will cause you to walk in darkness. God will just be a theological concept rather than your father. And it will give the enemy an open door to run roughshod over every aspect of your life. And if you can't find it in yourself at all to forgive, it may show that you are still yet dead in trespasses and sins. That you may have prayed a prayer, but you weren't born again into the kingdom of God. But for the point and purpose of this series in this season, my concern is unforgiveness will quench the Holy Spirit. I'm not Jesus. There's no excuse for you not to seek to forgive like Jesus. I love what James Montgomery Boyce said. He said, quote, it is as if Paul is saying, act like Christians for God's sake. And by God's power, forgive. Family, simple message today. As we, we, listen, we must be fervently faithful to Scripture, right? And we also must be freely forgiving in our walk. Let's not put those two things at odds with each other because then we're not being faithful to Scripture. Because the Scripture says to forgive one another as God in Christ forgave you. Because in the world and in the church, there's going to be no shortage of opportunities to nurse big-time grudges or low-grade grudges behind a veneer of a Christian smile. Didn't Jesus say the world will know that we're his disciples if we have love for one another? God didn't love you because you were lovely, but because he's loving so maybe we got to stop loving people because they're lovely, because they're not going to be all the time, rather because we want to embody the heart of our loving Father. I've given you many examples over the years here. Corey Ten Boom, who forgave her brutal uh, Nazi uh, extermination camp that she survived. Um, soldier there, prison guard. I've told you the story of John Perkins, who not many years ago was brutally beaten by some uh, law enforcement people in Jim Crow South, near to the point of death, how he forgave them. But I want to ask you, who do you need to forgive? Who has the Holy Spirit gently nudged on your heart that you need to forgive? I'm going to close with the story of Graham and Gladys Gaines, a heartbreaking story, as you'll hear. 
for 34 years. You've heard of them because it happened in India. For 34 years, Graham and Gladys Gaines had given their lives in India as missionaries seeking to care for and to reach with the gospel lepers. They were about to give far, far more. It was January the 23rd, 1999, when Graham Staines and his two sons, Timothy and Philip, just ages 8 and 10, were asleep in their car in a remote village in eastern India carrying for some lepers on one of their mission trips. As they were sleeping, a group of militant Hindus doused their vehicle with gasoline and set it ablaze. What's more, they prevented them from getting out of the car and prevented help from getting them out of the car. Watch them, they watched them be burned alive. This barbaric act got the world's attention. But you know what got the world's attention even more? The forgiveness extended by Gladys Gaines, this bereaving wife and mother. She chose, and I don't have time to read the full quote, she chose to forgive those attackers. That's, that's just, that's, that's almost unfathomable to me, isn't it? But she did that. She said she had to do that for her own healing. For the sake that she would not have a root of bitterness just grow up in her life. Quote, I will read you this, this, this short part. She says, how was I able to forgive? The truth is, I myself am a sinner. We say that theologically, but do we really believe that? Outside of Christ, that's our identity. I needed Jesus Christ to forgive me. Because I have Jesus in my life, it is possible for me to forgive others. Doesn't that sound an awful lot like Ephesians 4.32? General exhortation, be kind to one another, state of the heart, bowels of mercy, tenderhearted, crystal clear command, forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. You know, the impact of her decision to forgive was far-reaching. Before the murders of her husband and two young sons, their ministry really was quite localized. But after her volitional act of Christ's love in extending forgiveness, massive attention and change was brought to three big areas. The state of the persecution of Christians in India, to some of the activities of the really militant Hindu groups and to the need to care for people people don't want to be around, namely lepers. Now that's all beautiful, big picture stuff, but let me give you a flesh and bones example of what her act of Christ's love did. After the whole event was reported, and sometime later, another missionary reported that an Indian man had been given a gospel tract. And by the way, we have a tract rack right there. Everyone look back there. Why don't you take some of them and, and share them? They're, that's not the only way to evangelize. We also have these cards. You can invite people to church. Tracts are a great thing to have. I like to carry them around. I never know when I can use them as I'm talking to somebody. A tract just simply shares the gospel. This missionary had given a gospel tract to an individual man. 
After reading that tract, the man asked the missionary, is this the Jesus that Gladys Staines believes in? And the missionary replied, yep, yes it is. The man then said, I want to know this Jesus. That's convicting. I wonder if we forgive in such a way that people say, I want to know your Jesus. That's the impact that incredible act of forgiveness had. Imagine, and I'm closing now, we're going to take communion. Music team, if you would come. Imagine the impact your forgiveness could have on others, on your friends, on your marriage, on your church, in your neighborhood, and if nothing else, in your own heart. Remember, it is self-imprisonment. It is self-enslavement. Bitterness would be released so that the Spirit might fill you afresh. So that God wouldn't just be a theological concept, but to a God who is near and dear and felt by you. Don't you long for that? Don't you long for that? If not now, when? When? Cancer is a whole lot harder to deal with stage four than it is stage one. Why don't you take the cancer of your hurt and your pain and all that's keeping you from forgiving that person to the cross? Why don't you do that this morning? God, I think, has so much grace for us in this text. Be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. And if you have never, ever savingly Receive Christ's forgiveness. I think you've heard enough this morning to know he would forgive you if you were to turn to him.